Heads up, fellow listeners, this episode will have discussion of rape, transphobia, racism, and violence. A relative discovered the murder victims Friday on this farmstead south of Humboldt. The victims were Tina Brandon of Lincoln, Philip Devine of Fairfield, Iowa, and Lisa Lambert of Humboldt. The official briefing did not explain what could have sparked the slayings or what the other two victims were doing at Lisa Lambert's house. But the county attorney did reveal one strange detail. Tina Brandon posed as a man named Brandon. Tonight, I'm going to introduce you to someone who was different in the most fundamental way. A woman who felt she was a man. In fact, she lived as one convincingly. Our lead story is about how this particular kind of difference, you freak, when it gets out in a small town, can be a matter of life or death. Oh. Brandon Tina's complicated life inspired the Golden Globe winning film, Boys Don't One Cry. One film is already generating a great deal of buzz. Boys Don't Cry follows the true story of 21-year-old Tina Brandon, who wanted to live life as a boy, but found a tragic end. Here is the film's trailer. A true story of hope. Just make sure you get out. Fear. Are you or are you not? And the courage it takes to be yourself. Nothing can go wrong if we're together. That dream I had, we're on the highway together. We can still do it. Boys don't cry. On New Year's Eve 1993, in a farmhouse near Fall City, Nebraska, two men killed Brandon Tina, a 21-year-old trans man. His killing made news across the country and was even turned into the award-winning movie Boys Don't Cry, starring Hilary Swank. It was one of the first time trans identity was talked about so widely, but the coverage was mostly transphobic, misgendering him and identifying him as a closeted lesbian or a woman dressing as a man to, quote, live her dreams. This is The Bias, where we talk about what happens to a story before it prints out. We're your hosts, Isoke Samuel and Arno Pedron. In this episode, we'll talk about one of the transphobic articles written about Brandon. The article was special because people at the time protested its publication. It was also the piece that inspired the movie Boys Don't Cry. The author of this article now regrets the transphobia of her piece. So we'll try to understand what led her to write in the way she did and what accountability looks like for journalists who fuck up. I came to this story never having heard about Brandon's killing. It happened before I was born, and it wasn't a news story that anyone had ever told me about. But I did know about the movie Boys Don't Cry. It has a kind of cult following, and a lot of people close to me recommended I watch it. The thing is, I always get a little too emotionally invested in books and movies, so as a general rule of thumb, I try to steer clear of ones that feature violence against characters I know I'm going to end up caring about. It just hits me a little too hard. Because of that, I didn't watch the film until we decided to do this episode. But Arno, I know you have a different experience. This story is a little personal for you. Do you want to tell us why? Yeah. So... I monitor and work on the media's coverage of trans issues on a regular basis. And I've held workshops and sessions for journalism students and faculty to learn how to cover these issues better. So when I looked into the story, it had a lot of what I talk about in those workshops. The fascination for trans people, the misgendering, the amateurish like psychosexual diagnosis. I also wasn't born when Brenda was killed and I'm also not from North America. 
But when I asked my trans friends, this is a story that they all knew. For many, it was the first time that they saw a trans person on screen. And so you can imagine how hard it is to see this rare story end up in rape and murder. So when I was told that the author of one of the key articles of the time had come to regret her coverage, I thought it'd be worth digging into. That's how we met Donna. I'm recording. Yeah. Let me give you a preview of what we're going to do today. Uh-huh. In 1987, Donna Minkowitz started working for the Village Voice. Donna was part of the lesbian community and interested in unconventional, personal writing. In pictures of the time, she wore thin-framed silver glasses and short brown hair with boyish clothes. Donna was, and still is, a butch woman. The Village Voice was especially really pro-queer, which was really unusual um, in the 70s when I was growing up. It was very pro-sex, and I was coming out, um, you know, I was about 15 and 16, and anyway, it was totally exciting to read it. In our conversations with her, she told us she became the go-to reporter assigned to cover gay and lesbian politics. So when her editor heard about Brandon Tina, naturally, he sent Donna to report on the story. How Richard and how I immediately saw the story was like, wow, look at this. Um, a lesbian has, she was able to live as a man and have girlfriends who, um, who accepted her as a man. And she was able to do this and get away with this. And then... Um, then these people killed her. Um, so that was, that was the narrative I saw. But that wasn't who Brandon was. Brandon lived as a man and was known to his girlfriend as a man. In a Dyke TV piece a year after his death in 1994, one of Brandon's exes had no doubts about his gender. Brandon was a woman's man. I mean, every woman's dream. Every woman's dream. I, if I'm... Brandon really was a man. Oh, Jesus. He would have women after him all the time. I mean, he knew how to please you. He knew how to do everything right. And it was just like, ugh. Brandon was very popular with straight girls. And that was picked up by a lot of media. In the reports about him in the Associated Press, Playboy, and Donna's article in The Village Voice, Brandon was framed as a poser a gender deceiver, a lesbian masquerading as a man to get girls. When Donna talked with people he knew, part of her identified with Brandon, and that fit in with her habit of making her stories really personal. You know, Brandon was much better than their other boyfriends. He was more romantic. He wrote them poems and, you know, he wore cologne and gave them teddy bears. <laughs> and um, he was so much nicer and he didn't he didn't pressure them for sex and and just all this stuff. It, you know, it was, it felt so good to hear about him um, and, and identify with him. I mean, some of my undoing with the story was to, um, you know, not realize that Brandon really could have a different narrative than, than me. Donna spent a few days in Falls City where Brandon lived before he was killed. And there, she met Lana Tisdale, Brandon's last girlfriend. She spent time with Lana and her family, and she started to get a sense of what led to this triple murder. 
Uh, Lana um, was sort of the karaoke star there. Um, she's very pretty. Um, she's supposed to be one of the prettiest girls in town. Everyone looked down on her family. Her family was on welfare. Donna also says that Fall City looked down on Lana's family because they hung out with black people. Though this seemed like a small fact, it might actually have played a larger role in what happened on the night of Brandon's murder. The stories of the time, and Boys Don't Cry itself, focused on Brandon, but two other people were killed that night. One of them was Lisa Lambert, a friend of Brandon's who'd also had a relationship with him. And the third victim was Philip Devine, a black man who was dating Lana's sister. In her article, Donna identified Devine as a young black man and added that no other outlet mentioned his race. And indeed, none of the written or TV news reports we found from the time mentioned Devine's race. But the fact that he was black... Well, that's probably not incidental. I did not know this at the time I wrote my story, but I have found out since that um, Nissen was virulently racist, probably still is, um, and had belonged to a white supremacist organization. I think in some ways it was ancillary that there were two other people at this farmhouse. Um, at the same time, um, at the same time, I mean, it's not ancillary that Philip was a black man and at least one of them hated black people and didn't think it was a big deal to, to kill him. I mean, I think race, race was an under, um, under-analyzed part of the killing and part of this. So Donna filed her story. She says she didn't think there'd be anything controversial about her piece. I had no fear whatsoever. And I was completely shocked when I was walking to work at The Voice and I saw posters and they said something like, you know, Village Voice is murdering transsexuals or Village Voice is killing transsexuals. And they may have even had my name. They may have said, Donna Minkowitz is killing transsexuals. So I was like, what? You know, my story was in support of Brandon. This article is a psychosexual, salacious view of... It, it identifies, it says clearly that Brandon Tina did not identify as a woman and a lesbian, and yet it insists on referring to her as she and a lesbian, dwells on the sexual aspects, and even implies that having been raped as a child shaped this identity. Leslie Feinberg was the voice you just heard. Feinberg was a prominent trans and butch lesbian writer and activist. Her most famous work is Stone Butch Blues, and if you haven't read it, you absolutely should. Leslie was captured in a Dyke TV piece of the time and commented on the protest in front of the Village Voice. Feinberg is referring to parts of Donna's piece that were particularly intrusive in the life of Brandon. For example, part of Donna's article read, Her bereaved girlfriends are a leery of describing sexual details, but it's glaringly clear Brandon was the precise opposite of a doomy feminist. He wouldn't let anyone touch him here, here, and here. Lana says, pointing to her breasts, crotch, and thighs. Other lovers report, with varying degrees of explicitness, that Brendan never got touched by them. She was the only one who touched, stroked, stimulated, or stooped. You could call Brendan a top, 
but I'm not sure that word fully captures her enormous desire to give other people pleasure. Another person protesting that day with Leslie Feinberg was I'm Ricky Wilchens. And I've written a number of books on gender theory and politics, and uh, was also very active in uh, trans activism in the nine, 1990s. Ricky was six feet tall with a short brown pixie cut and round glasses. That day, she wore a black t-shirt with the words transsexual menace written across the front. She had printed those shirts just for the occasion. Trans people in the community were already angry because of a piece in Playboy magazine about Brendan. The piece was titled Gender Deceiver. It was gruesome in descriptions of the killings, and it seemed to almost blame Brendan for his murder. And that was a little surprising because at the time, Playboy was known to be more progressive on LGBT issues. So when Ricky heard that The Village Voice, a gay and lesbian-friendly newspaper, was also butchering the story, she decided to take action. There were probably, I don't know, 14 or 16 of us all in black transsexual men's t-shirts right outside the office of The Voice, just flyering like crazy. And um, it was very freeing and it was very exciting and none of us had ever done anything like that. We had purposely made sure to print up a whole bunch of the black transsexual men's t-shirt with kind of the red, blood-dripping, rocky horror lettering on the front, um, very tongue-in-cheek, but to make sure that we were visible and we printed up flyers beforehand and basically said, we're going to block off the building and um, anyone who goes in or out of this block gets a flyer. Village Voice piece ran and uh, took a really salacious tone uh, around thinking of Brandon as the, the ultimate hot butch. People were really ticked off. But I went downstairs and the funny thing is I started talking to the people in a friendly way. They did not know I was Donna Minkowitz, the author of the article. Um, I, I just came with my reporter's pad. I admit, part of me felt like Whoa, they're demonstrating against me! Wow, what a big deal! A lot of people stopped and watched, and then all of a sudden, uh, scared the heck out of us, three squad cars pulled up, and cops started pouring out. And we just stood there, and I went over to the first one really quietly, and said, what's up? And, uh, you, you know, said, we've heard there's a, you know, potentially violent protest, and I just said, look, you know, we're, <laughs> we're a bunch of transsexuals, and we're out here exercising our First Amendment rights, um, because we didn't like an article. The cops were amused. They stuck around, smiling. After about an hour or so, we had basically wallpapered everyone who come in or out of the block and uh, declared victory and went home. Ricky and other protesters continued to confront Donna. Once, Ricky says she went to one of Donna's speaking events to confront her on the flaws of the article. But eventually, Ricky and Donna moved on. It wasn't like we got an apology, but it wasn't like she was writing, you know, one piece after another. At a certain point, you, you know, you, you made your argument and you made your point. Ricky went deeper into trans activism, even organizing a vigil for Brandon in Fall City on the day of the murder trial. Donna would sometimes read critiques of her work in academic books about trans people, but she didn't accept these arguments. She couldn't see what was wrong with her piece. No, I didn't see, I didn't see the truth and the criticism for quite a long time, and I felt unjustly attacked. And for Ricky, in some ways, 
Donna was simply a product of her time, even as she were a lesbian and part of the lesbian community. I think that she also got caught in a shift in discourse. Um, transgender inclusion, sensitivity to transgender rights and identity um, was still a relatively new idea. And she was just writing about it with a very old frame when it was so acceptable to misgender and mispronoun trans people, uh, something that became totally unacceptable within a few years. I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me. At some point in the early 2000s, um, I began to be concerned that, um, that maybe I'd gotten this wrong. I think trans people were more visible. I started seeing and hearing a lot more about trans people. Uh, in 2005, I, uh, I met a new girlfriend who I eventually married. And my girlfriend had, uh, had gone to graduate school in sociology and um, knew a lot more about trans people than I did. And I remember I had begun to I had begun to think that maybe, maybe there was a lot I just didn't know about trans people and, uh, and that I had a lot to learn. And, um, and I started educating myself more. It was hard for me because um, I had considered this one of my best articles. I mean, I, I liked my reporting and um, I thought I, uh, I thought I was striking a blow against gender conformity. This realization came with a fundamental questioning of her style and approach to writing. Donna's writing had always been highly personal. It relied on interpreting the actions of others through the things that she'd experienced in her own life. Ricky and others who had protested at the time had tried to point out the problems with her approach to stories. Problems you could read in lines like, From photos of the wonder boy chick playing pool, kissing babes, and lifting a straight male neighbor high up in the air to impress partygoers at her and Gina's engagement party, Brendan looks to be the handsomest butch item in history. Not just good-looking, but arrogant, audacious, cocky. Everything they and I look for in lovers. I realized that was part of her style to do this kind of high, high, very intense personal engagement. Um, and that I kind of accounted for, I think, a little bit of why she took the unfortunate approach she did with Brandon. That having been said... Um, it's not the approach that anyone should think about taking with someone who's recently been murdered, trans or not. I wrote a lot uh, in my earlier career about the Christian right. Um, I was really frightened of them and I went undercover and uh, did many pieces on them and my, uh, my first book is uh, partly about them. But I, I read myself into them or I read them into me. I. Um, I thought I could understand things about them by projecting through myself. And I mean, I think some of that may have been good, but I now am much more suspicious of that. 
it's hard because I don't believe that, you know, intuition should be divorced from journalism, but I, uh, but I can plainly see that, you know, intuition and imagination won't, you know, won't give us all, you know, all we need. Donna considered writing an apology, but she was afraid she'd get something wrong again and face more backlash. But for the 25th anniversary of Brandon's death, an editor at the Village Voice contacted her to write a piece. She thought it would be the best time to write an apology and a correction. I had begun to see that I, um, I had been, I had probably been wrong, and I wanted to learn. And then I, then I wanted to apologize, and it, uh, it was hard to think of exactly how to do that. <laughs> In her apology, Donna points out the details she ignored that would have allowed readers to get to know who Brandon was and wanted to be. She apologizes for suggesting that Brandon being sexually abused as a child explained why he hated his female body. She wrote, For years, I have wanted to apologize for what I now understand, with some shame, was the article's implicit anti-trans framing. Without spelling it out, the article cast Brandon as a lesbian who hated her body because of prior experiences of childhood sexual abuse and rape. Um, the reactions were not uniformly positive. Um, I did have, I did get some tweets that were like, you know, you know, this is too late, fuck you. But I'm really pleased with with the reaction overall and I was I was especially pleased that some trans people felt that I had really made that made it up to them. I was glad to read when she did uh, make a public apology and I thought that reflected well on her. Public apologies are not easy to make. Uh, I've had to make a few myself in my lifetime and a few private ones and um, it's nice to know that she, she got it and gets it. So Arno, what did you think about this story? Yeah, it's okay. So the story was surprising to me in many ways. And one of the things that came up is that when I think about murders of trans people, I usually think of black and Latina trans women. This year alone, at least 40 trans people, most of them black or Latina, were murdered in the U.S. It's a number that keeps on rising, and it's something that Ricky also picked up. Because at the time, most trans people being murdered were living in urban, low-income, black neighborhoods. Here's what she said. Uh, Brandon was the exact opposite. He was in a rural community, farm community, essentially. He was not urban. He was white. Um, he was not black or Latina. Brandon happened to be conventionally attractive in a way that, you know, white cisgender audiences could relate to. Uh, and that part is really sad and in some ways quite racist. But at the same time, it also opened the door to a new kind of awareness and coverage and became the hinge for a lot of the later awareness that we were able to build on around transgender violence because people knew about Brandon Tina. They'd seen the movie. The movie did mad business. So it's a mixed bag, right? 
And it's not like reporters are perfect now, otherwise I wouldn't be doing those workshops. People still get misgendered, called the wrong name. There's still a lot of fantasies around trans people's genitals and transition and sexuality. And beyond the murder stories, there are many other facets of trans people's lives that deserve to be covered and covered well. So there's a long road ahead. I think Donna's story is also particularly interesting because it grapples with a fundamental question in the craft of journalism. Like, how much of ourselves do we as journalists include in a story? The obvious answer for a story about someone you didn't know personally, in my opinion, is none at all. But we're human, so in some ways that's impossible. Yet trying to understand someone through your own personal experiences or a larger academic analysis is definitely not the way to go, especially with the news story. I feel differently. I, I think that there is value in trying to use your personal experience or an academic analysis to think through an event. But I think that there are appropriate ways and inappropriate ways of doing it. Using personal and academic analysis can be useful to bounce back to a larger context or like connect with other people. But in Donna's piece of the time, using her personal experience to understand Brandon was more of a way to reflect back to her. It was kind of like a self-centered exercise. And that was at the cost of Brandon's dignity. And the reason that she could do that, like Ricky said, is that there wasn't some kind of counter discourse at the time that demanded more respect for trans people. So I think that it's definitely more of a thing now, but I don't think it's granted. The AP, NPR, and big news outlets are updating their style guides. Trans people in stories are making it into the cover of mainstream outlets. We're at a point where journalists are increasingly being asked to recognize the humanity of trans people and cover them accurately. It's a struggle, but I feel like there's more space than there used to be to have better stories told about those communities. Or at least there's more space to criticize. Yeah, I hear that. We can agree to disagree on including the personal and the news reporting, but you and Ricky are so right about the shifting discourse. There's still so much work to do, but recognizing where we've made mistakes in the past and being willing to apologize and do better next time is definitely a place to start. Well, that was The Bias, a podcast where we talk about what happens to a story before it prints out. I'm Isoke. And I'm Arno Pedram. See you next time. This podcast was produced and reported by Isoke Samuel and Arno Pedram. It was edited by Kylie Anderson. The footage of the protest of Leslie Feinberg and the karaoke is from Dive TV. The music is remixed from Audionautics.com. The podcast theme is by Gus Fisher. Special thanks to Donna Minkowitz and Ricky Watchins for their contribution to this episode. Bye. Bye.